Father, we thank you so much for today. Uh, We are uh, simply in awe as we look at the beauty of your creation. And uh, we are reminded of how much you care for all that you've created. And then we think about the fact that you've given us a day to be your people together and to worship and to, uh, to be encouraged by your word and uh, to be nourished and strengthened by your work in our lives. And so we're so thankful for today. I pray you would bless our time together as we continue to look at uh, some of these core ideas of the Christian faith. And would you strengthen our faith through that? Help us to grow and mature and help us to be ready to always have an answer for the hope that we have in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a football. Anybody know where I'm going with this? It's one of those sports that's not played on ice. <laughs> one of the sports that's not played on ice. We're, I was hoping Kent Brooks was going to be here. He, was gonna, he knows where I'm going with this. Right? This is a football. You all know that? So, back in July of 1961, 38 Green Bay Packers gathered together for the very first day of training for the next season. It was important because they had just finished the last season going as far as you possibly can go. They went to the Super Bowl. But they got beat. They got beat by the Philadelphia Eagles kind of in the last minutes of the game or the last quarters of the game. And it was a hard off season, as you can imagine. Like they were, they were all the way to the very end. They had it within their grasp and then they lost the Super Bowl. So they went through the off season, and then came July when they gathered together to uh, begin their training for the next season. And their coach, who by almost everybody's estimation is not only one of the greatest football coaches ever, but one of the greatest coaches ever, Vince Lombardi, he came into the very first day of training for that new season and he walked in to those men who had just finished the off-season going through the difficulties And he held up a football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And then they proceeded to go back to the basics. He began teaching them again and again about tackling, about blocking. They opened up their playbook to page one. And went back to the very beginning into the basics. They drilled. They practiced over and over and over again. And eventually, they got into the season. They played well enough that they went into the the postseason. They went into the tournament. And they went again to the Super Bowl. Second year in a row, they went to the Super Bowl. This time, they were playing the New York Giants. And in 1962, the Super Bowl of 1962, the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl 37 to nothing against the Giants. Now, uh, if you go back and look at Vince Lombardi's uh, record, uh, it's just amazing what he did. Um, I think the, the Super Bowl loss was one of the only losses, if not the only loss that he had in the postseason uh, with the Green Bay Packers. Uh, this man knew how to train and how to teach uh, young men to play football. 
But what did he do? Even after they went all the way to the end and almost won the Super Bowl the year before, what did, where did he begin? Where did he start? He started with the basics. He started with the foundations. And that's what we're doing in this class. Core Christianity is the, the name of the class based on Michael Horton's book, Core, Core Christianity. And although I would say what we're talking about in this class isn't simple, uh, it's deep, it's, it's significant as we'll talk today. Um, but this is the core of what we believe the Christian faith is about. And I don't care whether you're here as someone who has been a Christian for more years than I've been on the planet. Uh, or if you are brand new to Christianity, or maybe you're here today and you're not even sure you're a Christian and you're investigating what that looks like. Uh, going back to the basics and looking at the fundamentals of the faith, of who God is and who, uh, who we are and all that he has done uh, is incredibly important. So, with that in mind, uh, here's the question that I want us to reflect on just a little bit today. Um, if you had to say... One of the most difficult things to understand about the Christian faith is dot, dot, dot. Now, we might come up with all kinds of different things there, but I'm, and I won't take the time because we're running a little bit behind, so I won't take the time to kind of have everybody kind of voice different things, but I, I will promise you that if we did that very long, maybe it would only take the first person that would speak up and say it. Eventually, we would come to this. How is God... All-powerful and great and good at the same time. How is God, the sovereign creator of the universe, in charge of everything, and yet there is evil in this world? Those two things do not seem to match up. And uh, that's not a new idea, that's not a new problem that Christians have been wrestling with. That's something that goes back to the very beginning. And even in the scriptures we see somebody like the Apostle Paul wrestling with that idea in his book to the Romans. Uh, this is an ancient question, it's an ancient uh, uh, consternation for Christians. How do we affirm both that God is holy and he is great and he is sovereign and he is all-powerful and at the same time that he is good when we see evil and brokenness and such trials and difficulties in this world? And the answer to that is how do we affirm both? We affirm both because both of them are in the scriptures. And that's what I want us to look at just briefly here today as we think about this question about how is God both good and great. If you've got Bibles with you uh, or if you want to use the red Bibles around you, we're going to look at a couple different passages today. The first one is in Psalm 90. So if the Bible's not familiar to you, if you just open kind of in the middle of the Bible, you'll probably, excuse me, be pretty close to the Psalms. And if you're in the Red Bibles, our passage that I'm going to look at just briefly is on 496 and 497. But Psalm 90. So the first thing I want you to know, notice that you're looking, if you're looking at the scriptures there, um, who is this psalm ascribed to? Moses, right? And uh, if you know anything about Moses' life, certainly... He saw both the, the majesty and the sovereignty of God, but he also saw some really, truly uh, difficult and evil things happening 
in the world. And Moses uh, wrote Psalm 90, not only to deal with that issue and that question, but certainly helps us as we process through this a little bit. So first of all, I just want to look at the first six verses, and I want you to think about what is Moses highlighting for us here in these first six verses. So we read in uh, Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. So what do you, as you hear those words, if you look at those words, what do you think Moses is, what attribute of God, or what idea, of, uh, aspect of God is he focused in on those first six verses? Say it again. His, his omnipotence, which that's a big theological word, right? It just means that God is all-powerful, right? His sovereignty. He's the creator God. All things are under his power, under his control, right? That's where Moses is focusing our attention there in those first six verses. Uh, look at the next uh, set of verses beginning in verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason by strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath? According to the fear of you. So what would you say is kind of in Moses' mind uh, in these verses? What is he thinking about or focusing on here? God's holiness holiness for sure. Yeah. I mean, you see that all throughout the the passage. What? His justice, right? So um, we can go lots of different ways with this and it would be worthy to kind of dig in even deeper. But in particular, what I want you to kind of think about is the fact that um, it, God's all-powerful. He is, he is perfectly holy. He is perfectly sovereign. But what Moses is reminding us here, what God is reminding us here about himself in these uh, 7 through 11, is that not only is he, is he holy, but he is also just and he's good to deal with the brokenness and the evil and, and the sin of this world. He will not let it go on forever. That he is a just God. He, he is the one who will punish sin. He is the one who brings his wrath to bear on wickedness, on evil. And sometimes that's hard for us to think about. It's hard for us to understand. But at the very least, what we can see, or, or maybe not the very least, but one of the things we can see is that it shows us that God is good, that he will not let evil, he will not let wickedness win. He will conquer it. He will bring it to an end. He will bring justice and judgment on that which is wicked. Okay, so how about the the next set of verses, uh, beginning in verse 12. So, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, 
that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So what aspect of God, what attribute of God is is Moses highlighting for us here in, in verses 12 through 17? His power and... His love, yeah, his, in fact we could say his powerful love, right? His steadfast love, his faithful love, his never-ending love, his overpowering love, his grace, his mercy to his people is, is there. It's there in the passage. It's a reminder to us of the reality of God's love, of his mercy, that he would show his work and his power and remind us of his steadfast love. And his favor. So here in this one psalm, and I'm greatly oversimplifying, uh, I'm, I'm kind of broad stroking this passage, but I want us to see that Moses is wrestling with the sovereign power and greatness of God and his holiness and his goodness, that he will deal with wickedness and sin, and that he is gracious and merciful and that he shows us his steadfast love and favor. Uh, It's all there in that one passage. Moses' mind as he's writing these things down with all of his history uh, that he's gone through, all the things that he's seen, he he reminds us of both being true. God is is all-powerful. He is sovereign. But there is evil. There is wickedness in this world. And yet he is still good. He is the God of all goodness and greatness. Um. I'm going to forego the video today since we're running a little bit behind. And instead, uh, what I want us to do is just to kind of think about this a little bit more in the, in the sense of the, the Bible has a different answer than what many in the world would say. Many in the world who, who don't believe in God or who don't believe the God of the Bible would say, well, God can either be all-powerful or he can be good, but he can't be both. And if he's all-powerful, then that just the, the, the mindset is that he's an evil ogre, that he, that he is uh, uh, maniacal. He, can, he, he does whatever he wants and that he is, he is uh, uh, fine with allowing creation and, uh, and, 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 and his people to have to suffer under evil. That's one idea that's out there about who God is. But the other idea is that God is good, but he can't really take care of the problem. He either needs our help. Or uh, we have to hope that someday it'll battle it out and maybe he'll come on top of evil and of the evil one. And yet the Bible tells us a different story. It gives us a different answer. It gives us the answer that God is great and that God is good. And it also helps us to understand how God is going to address that evil. So again, let's dig in a little bit. Let's look at a different psalm this time. Let's look at Psalm 139. So if you're still there at Psalm 90, just go write a few verses or a few chapters. You'll get to Psalm 139. Um, and what does the beginning of Psalm 139 tell us? Who is this psalm written by? Not Moses this time, but who? David. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we have a different person writing uh, under the inspiration uh, of the Holy Spirit by God himself. Uh, but and also somebody who had uh, experiences of both the greatness of God, but also the goodness of God in the midst of even 
uh, evil and wickedness that he saw. But, but notice, notice what David says here uh, to us in Psalm 139. Uh, let's look, just look here at the first six verses. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What is David pointing there to? What, what attribute of God or what quality of God is he pointing to? Yeah, he is omniscient. Now, that's another big word. Uh, Todd used a big word. There's another big... He's, it means all-knowing, right? God knows all. What does David say? Uh, even uh, be, be, before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You know my path, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. You discern my thoughts from afar. Now, that might scare us a little bit if we recognize that anything that we think about is already known by the Lord himself. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you've searched me and you know me. He knows us. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. goes on in verses 7 and following to talk about a different attribute of God. Where shall I go from your spirit, he says? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. What, what quality is, is David speaking about there, about who God is? He's not only all-knowing, he is he's omnipresent. Again, we've got these big theological words. They're good words to know. Omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is no place that God is not. You can't go to the, some uttermost part of the sea. You can't go up to the heavens or down here under the earth or even under the earth. You can't flee. You can't be away from God. He is omnipresent. He is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He's all-present. He is omnipresent. And then look at the last um, Another attribute that David brings out in verses 13 uh, and following. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of... Of the earth, you saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. What attribute of God is he focused on there in those verses? We'll go back to the one that Todd gave us earlier, right? His omnipotence is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is overall. He's the creator of all. So David is giving us this reminder of the truth that God is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is great. He is the great God, creator, God, and king of the universe. 
But the Bible also tells us that God is good. And think about New Testament passage, one of the classics that talks about God and his goodness and his love. You can go to 1 John uh, chapter 4. If you're using the Red Bibles, that's on page 1023. The Bible teaches us not only that God is great, that He is sovereign, He is all-knowing and everywhere present and all-powerful, but He is also a good, loving, and compassionate God. Listen to what John tells us in 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. God is not just all powerful. And all-knowing. And everywhere present. And the ruler and sovereign creator, God and king of the universe. He is also love. It's not just that he knows love. It's not just that he shows us love. John says he is love. He is the very definition of what love is. We don't know what love is until we see God and we see what he has done. He's demonstrated his love for us and how by sending his son into this world to be the propitiation John says to pay for our sin so that we might have our sins forgiven and paid for but also be credited with the righteousness of God. So the Bible, different from how other people might talk about it, shows us that on the one hand it is completely entirely uh, absolutely true that God is great. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere present. And it is also true that God is love and that He is good and that He is compassionate and that He is faithful. So how do we as Christians try to bring these two together? Uh, because we have to affirm both of them if we're going to believe that God's word is true. If it's the Bible is true, the Bible affirms both of them. Just Even just a couple passages we can see that from this morning. We could spend the rest of the day opening up the scriptures and see uh, those truths throughout the scriptures. But just in these couple passages we've looked at, we see that God is good, but he is also great. So how do we deal with that? How do, we, how do we wrestle through that? 
And I think the, the biggest answer for that is we see uh, what God did with the cross. In my mind, the cross is the answer of how these two things come together. Because the cross is a recognition that there's a problem. That there's evil in the world. That there's wickedness. That there's sin. But the cross also shows us that God is not only uh, in charge and that he is sovereign. But it also shows us that he is love. Because the cross is not just uh, that God is in control. But it's showing us that he sent his son to die. to, To shed his blood on the cross. So that evil and wickedness would be finished and completed and and conquered once and for all. And it's only as we try to understand the depth of God's mercy and grace of the cross that we start to be able to wrestle with these truths. And even then, it still is something that is very difficult and something that we can't completely come to fully understand. We are finite. We are... Uh, we are not omniscient. Uh, and by the way, we're not told that we'll be omniscient in heaven. Uh, we are finite. We are the creatures. And we're told that both of these things are true, so we have to affirm them. But in the cross, we have the illustration of it. We have the demonstration of how these things come together. And, and do you see how that helps us to affirm not just that God is this great creator but that he actually cares what's happening here and that he actually is uh, uh, he, he is at work uh, bringing an end to the evil and the wickedness of this world. And it's only in the cross that we can start to try to make sense of these things and to at least come to some aspect of saying, I can't completely understand it, but at least my head is starting to get around these ideas that this shows me God's omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence and yet at the same time that he is loving and compassionate. Um, Let's just finish with a couple of questions here as we kind of continue to process through this a little bit. Um, how, how would you say, let me ask this question, how, how would you say that the Bible gives us some kind of understanding for why evil exists at all? There are some that would say, you know, that either evil doesn't exist or that, uh, that God is not uh, a good God, right? But how, how does the Bible give us some kind of understanding about why evil exists? Well, I think they, from the argument, you know, if God is all good and he wouldn't allow evil, there's a hidden assumption there that if God is a good God, then he couldn't allow evil. But I think the Bible shows us that God allows evil for a greater purpose. Yeah, so the so to I don't know if everybody heard what Adrian was saying, but that evil was allowed by God to show it, show his greater glory in that sense. Well, if we had to define evil, what would we say evil is? Any violation of the moral character of God. Uh, say it again. Any violation of the moral character. Of God. A violation of the moral character of God. 
And, uh, and, and to, I think it's a good broad definition, and in a lot of ways it's close to how the Shorter Catechism talks about what is sin, right? Any want or conformity of the, uh, the, the, the Word of God. Um, there's also, I mean, we can also go back to Genesis and at the very, the, the, the first chapters of Genesis where we're given the, the account of creation. And when God gets done with creation, what does he say about it? It's good. Two chapters later, we have, yeah, it falls apart, right? In the sense that uh, all of a sudden we have evil, right? And so there's a sense in which we have to start with the place where we're, what we're given in the scriptures that God is good, that he has created that which is good, and evil is a corruption of that which is good. Uh, it, it is a corruption of, of his good creation as God stood back and he looked at his creation he said it is good and he looked back and he saw uh, his creation of man and he said it is very good and then in chapter 3 we see the corruption of that good as the evil one the serpent uh, seduces Adam and Eve uh, to believe a lie instead of continue believing the truth Um, in, in some ways the, the, the categories of good and evil only exist because of the fact that there is an absolute, eternal, and moral standard that God has given to us. It's hard for us even to talk about something being evil unless there is an absolute good for us to be able to talk about. It's established by God himself so that we know what the standard is and therefore we know what the corruption of that evil is. We don't know that something's bad unless we know that something is good in that sense, right? So when God stood back and he says, it is good, that's the standard, it was perfect. And, the, and then when we read in, in chapter 3 that things are not good, uh, as the serpent comes in and uh, evil is present, we read that in the context of it, it's in contrast with things being good, that we now know what evil looks like. So in some ways, being a Christian and holding to what the scriptures teach us about who God is and the, the reality of the fallenness and brokenness of the world gives us the tools, gives us the standard, the foundation on which to stand and say, yes, there is evil in this world. There is corruption of the goodness that God created. Um, but, but we don't do that without hope. The hope that we have is that we know how the corruption and the evil and the wickedness is dealt with and finished and completed. Quickly, yes. I was just thinking, human, humanity gets a little ahead of God in this area. In the sense that he's given us so much to learn, do, follow, and know about, and we can't handle what he has given to us. And just as Adam and Eve wanted to get that knowledge and live, you know. Yeah. We like God, we also want to understand yeah. this, and it is a mystery. Truly, that is the only mystery of the Christian faith. Yeah, I, you can't give an answer exactly I, for that. I think that's very helpful. Um, and, yeah, that's helpful, Jane, in terms of just remembering and reminding us that as we're talking about this and we're talking about the reality of who God is and his greatness, but also the fact that he is good um, and the reality of evil, the reality of wickedness, 
Um, it's also a recognition that because we're finite, we're not, the, we're not the creator, we're the creatures, we're the creation. There's always going to be mystery. Our heads can never completely put it together. Um, I, I think that the cross is what gives us uh, where, we have to, uh, where we have to finish and saying, I don't understand all of this necessarily. I mean, even Paul, if you read uh, in, in Romans 9, um, as he's thinking through some of this. I think I've shared this story with you before, but he's, he's thinking through some of these very difficult things. God's uh, sovereignty and, and man's responsibility, God's greatness, and yet, and yet man's uh, dealing with uh, evil in this world, and how do we put all that together? And, he's, and it's almost like he's kind of unpacking the layers of that question, and he's thinking of the questions that the people in the church in Rome are going to ask, and so he's starting to answer some of those questions, and then he gets to the end, and it's almost like if he would just answer one more question that he asked, and yet he doesn't answer it completely, he ends by saying, you know, who are you, old man, to, to talk back to God? And I I think that's ultimately where we have to end, right? When we can't get our heads around this completely, we have to end with the uh, the, the reality that we don't get to know everything. And, and it's, you know, again, we're not omniscient now, and there's no, we're not told that we're going to be omniscient in heaven. But that's part of what then, as we look at the cross, that's what propels us to just be filled with awe and, 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 and wonder that God would be at work in this way. And so I want to end with just this one last uh, question and comment here. Um, because of what we're talking about is so, um, it's so much, it's very real uh, for us in this room. It's real for us as we walk out of this building and into the world that is full of wickedness and evil. Um, it's real for us uh, even individually perhaps as we wrestle with these things as God's people. Is it wrong or does it mean that it's weak, that we're weak, for Christians to wrestle with the problem of evil and suffering in this world? I I hope that you can say heartily, no, it's not wrong. No, it doesn't make you weak. Um, it's good for us to talk about this, and we're just scraping the surface. And, and I would, and because we're kind of shortened today, it's even even more frustrating in that sense. But you could pick up Horton's book; he digs into it a little bit more. There's some other good resources that are out there. We can talk some more about it as well. Um, but but that's where I wanted to end: is just to say, if you're a believer in Christ and you're trusting in the the greatness of God. His omnipotence, his omniscience, his, his omnipresence. And at the same time, you're also wrestling with how can God, who I know is good, who is faithful, who is compassionate and loving, and yet why, why do I see this evil and wickedness in, in my own life, in the lives of my church family, in this world, then to know that doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're immature. The Apostle Paul was wrestling through these things. Um, it doesn't mean that, uh, that you're a bad Christian. It, it, it's where you should be because it means your eyes are open. Um, and, and hopefully where you will land is where we have to land, which is, this is true. Who God is. He is, he is great. But he is also good. And uh, Horton in his video goes back to the, the little prayer that we sometimes teach our children uh, to pray for our meals. Anybody do that? Uh, God is, and God is good.
right? We understand that even on, on, on a level with our children that we affirm both of those things because the Bible tells us that both of those things are true. And in the midst of those times when we struggle to understand and even crying out to the Lord, knowing that that's normal, that's appropriate, we look to the cross and we see in the cross the answer to uh, his greatness and his goodness. And that's what we cling to even in those moments when it's at the end of the day a mystery for us. So I realize this is shortened class. We're dealing with tough, tough stuff today. Um, please don't uh, just kind of wash that away, but just take, take away whatever little tidbit you can from today. Dig into those passages we looked at a little bit more. Maybe look at Horton's book in particular. Um, and I would say this too. If you're, if you're wrestling with that and need to kind of continue to process it, um, please, let's talk. Let's talk through that, either with me or one of the elders or even just a brother and sister in Christ as we can all can relate to that tension that we can feel. Um, but let's encourage one another to affirm uh, the truth of the scriptures about who God is and his greatness and his goodness demonstrated in the cross. So let me uh, finish by praying for us and then uh, we'll transition to uh, uh, the second service or you'll be able to head home and enjoy this incredible day that the Lord's given to us. So let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for even just the few minutes we've had this morning to, um, to scratch the surface on some of these very weighty things. And uh, whether we talk about it for 40 minutes or whether we talk about it for four hours, we know that uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's, it is hard for us to get our uh, created finite minds around the depths of your mystery and wisdom. Um, we're so thankful you give us your word and we're thankful that it's clear and we can read it. And so, Father, we would seek to believe and to affirm what it tells us that you are great and that you are good, that you are all powerful and sovereign and, Father, that you are loving and compassionate. And we thank you that the cross is very much real to us and we thank you that not only have you taught us about the cross but having lived where we are now being able to know that Christ's work on the cross is completed and so father as we wrestle as we wrestle with these things help us to be anchored in your truth and to be anchored in your grace and love demonstrated through Jesus on the cross and would you strengthen us in our faith so that we might truly love you and obey you and we pray this in Jesus name amen